Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin here with producer Mike Preisner. This is our patron-only podcast, and we just wanted to remind everyone that this is how we fund our video content, which is ad-free and accessible to everyone. We just published a short documentary we're really proud of about U.S. imperialism in Uganda. And just last year, we did two short documentaries about our topic today, the Afghanistan war, which I hope everyone checks out on our YouTube channel. This week, President Biden made a major announcement to withdraw the remaining 3,500 U.S. military personnel from Afghanistan, with 7,000 NATO soldiers expected to withdraw also. The deadline Biden gave for the full withdrawal is on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, the same event that the U.S. empire used to justify its criminal invasion and subsequent 20-year occupation of the country in the first place. This is four months past the deadline negotiated by the Trump administration and the Taliban. Meanwhile, violence is on the rise in Afghanistan. More than 1,700 civilians were killed or wounded in attacks in the first three months of 2021. That's up 23% from the same period last year, according to the UN assistance mission in Afghanistan. The Afghanistan war is America's longest war jokingly referred to as the forever war because it's just been accepted as a constant reality for so long. So it's pretty hard to believe it's really coming to an end, especially given the empty rhetoric and unfulfilled promises from every administration, including Biden serving as VP himself back in 2014, declaring an end to combat operations there. With Biden now president and declaring that the troops are finally coming home, What will the policy be moving forward? Well, Mike and I are here to cut through the rhetoric and give you the deeper story. So, Mike, I checked out Biden's big speech on this. What I found interesting is that he literally did say it's time to end the forever war. You know, even he is admitting that it's pretty much been this constant war uh, going on for the last 20 years. But he made sure to only say war, singular not wars, plural, because his entire speech basically made clear that there's no plan at all to curb the larger war on terror, which is also a forever war, really, when you think about it. I mean, this is what justifies the constant U.S. militarism bombing occupation anywhere around the world with that pretext of counterterrorism. So clearly, all of these other wars will continue unabated, and he even iterated this. He said from Somalia to Syria to Yemen— I mean, these wars kill countless civilians all around the world. They're, of course, waged much more conspicuously and at a much farther distance without the PR disaster of full-blown ground occupations, which, you know, they they saw the failure of those and just how much was wasted, um, financially speaking, probably, and uh, with military personnel with Afghanistan and Iraq, of course. Um, he said, quote, we will not take our eyes off the terrorist threat. We will re-strategize our fight against terrorism. We will hold the Taliban accountable, and we will focus our full attention on the threat we face today. My team is focusing on significant terrorist threats wherever they arise in Africa, Europe, the Middle East, or elsewhere. So, Mike, I want your take on this. Um, you know, and and also, what do you think about him saying? You know, this is based on no preconditions at all, because of course you have people saying, "Oh, let's make this conditional," and 
you know, making it conditional means there's always a reason to stay. So why don't you break through the noise for us and what damage he's doing by dragging this deadline out? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because it the speech has kind of been uh, depicted as Biden uh, ending the Afghanistan war, finally. You know, and that's what his speech was aimed at, um, portraying to people, Biden saying, I am the president that is ending the Afghanistan war. You know, this is the fourth administration consecutively, and I'm not going to pass it to a fifth. That's what he said. Um, But really, his speech was saying that he was going to drag out the war an extra four and a half months. The full withdrawal of U.S. troops, which Biden said that he would be doing, was already uh, an agreed upon deal at the Doha uh, peace conference with the Taliban um, and the, you you know, the United States and Afghan forces were represented there, too. Um, And so May 1st was the withdrawal deadline, a totally feasible deadline. Um, It would be very easy for Biden to come in there. It had already been making preparations for that deadline before Biden came in and he could have easily just held to the deadline and just, you know, and everything would have gone off without a hitch. Taliban was like, okay, we won't attack you on the way out because you're holding to your deadline. Um, and, you know, it would have been a, a clean end. I, it, it kind of is bizarre that he would then come in and say, yes, I'm going to basically hold the same policy as Trump, which he is. He's, he's adopting the same policy that the Trump administration put in place. Um, but he's saying, I, but we're going to leave just four months later. And so the question is like, is it just for the like political theater to say, oh, I ended the war on 9-11, <laughs> you know, 20 years after the 9-11 attacks and this like weird, you know, they're very big on the the theater up there in the Biden administration. I mean, everyone, if you haven't seen their walking through the hallways, yeah, all slow the time. motion walking <laughs> Twitter account and they're like weird Kamala Harris photographer. Um you know, they're, they're very big into the theater, uh, but the, the it opens a door for things to go south pretty badly. Um, the Taliban was not consulted about changing the, the terms of the deal. The U.S. tried very hard for many, many years to form a deal with the Taliban. It finally happened. You know, that wasn't Trump's policy that actually started under the Obama administration trying to make a peace deal with the Taliban. Um, the Taliban are not on board with this new withdrawal deadline. And prior to Biden making this announcement, they said, if you do not leave by May 1st, we are going to inflict a mass casualty event uh, on U.S. forces. And they're clearly in the position to be able to do so. The Taliban has taken over most of the country. They're surrounding all of the areas where the U.S. exists. They, in fact, just a couple of days ago, attacked a secret U.S. military facility that no one was supposed to know existed. So they're clearly capable of doing this. And so why would Biden risk these knowing that. And of course, the generals and intelligence operatives that by the Biden team, they all know that they're risking the Taliban launching large scale attacks on U.S. forces uh, as they leave, which couldn't end up being a justification to uh, continue the war. But I think that by the fact that Biden has emphasized that it's without conditions, meaning if the Taliban blows up 100 soldiers <laughs> on the way out, uh, then that's, uh, you know, our withdrawal is not conditional on that. And when Jen Psaki um, said at the press conference, when someone said, how do you know the Taliban is not going to attack U.S. forces on the way out? She basically said, well, that would be bad for the Taliban because then they would be basically hurting their standing when they for to negotiate to work with us and other countries after they basically are in charge of Afghanistan. <laughs> Just admitting um, it right out. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of that, the threats in the Taliban may be just a lot of like bluster and also just, you know, do they have, can they actually carry out an attack big enough to uh, really hurt the United States? Um, and 
or, you know, were they just you know, making threats to make sure that the U.S. sticks to the deadline? So it's not a guarantee that the Taliban is going to start, you know, they've already done some small attacks, but this mass casualty event, you know, we don't know if that's really going to happen. If it did happen, it would be an opportunity for the Biden people to say, oh, look, this attack happened. You know, we have to stay and engage on the ground. But I think that they actually want to leave. Um, and the last thing I'll say before getting your take on kind of this, the, the other potential damage that's been done to the peace deal, um, is the fact that Biden came in and stuck to the same policy. Um, you know, when Trump announced this policy, it was treated as like, he's going against the establishment. Nobody wants this. Like the, there is that report that came out about the Russian bounties, which is like, oh, the deep state doesn't want the Afghanistan war to end. This is proof of that. And then you had like a, in, in Congress, you had these Democrats try to like put an amendment in the um, defense spending bill to try to sabotage the withdrawal supposedly. And so it was like, this is going against the establishment. The establishment doesn't want the Afghanistan war to end. And Trump is going against the establishment by implementing this plan. The fact that Biden came in and many probably expected that he would reverse course on Trump's plan. Um, and if it was against what the establishment wanted, who more represents the establishment than fucking Joe Biden? You know, like he's just, he's hatched from the establishment. Um, the fact that Biden came in and basically said, we are sticking to the same exact plan, except we're going to, you know, make a big deal about getting out on, on September 11th instead of May 1st, um, shows that it's, this is flowing from the Pentagon. It's not flowing from Washington. The fact that there's been this congruent, you know, this continuous strategy through both administrations, this is what the Pentagon wants. Um, and so it's a plan from the establishment itself. Now that uh, all of everyone else got the memo, all the other demo, no, no one's really standing up to this. I mean, and I think further evidence that this is the Pentagon's plan and not Biden or Trump's plan is the fact that when this was there, you know, there was the Senate hearing about this, um, the withdrawal. And it received basically no pushback. I mean, on from Republicans or from Democrats. I mean, you had maybe one Democrat ask questions about, oh, well, what does this mean about future of terrorism? And then Marco Rubio is the one Republican that was like, oh, well, I still have some questions. Da, da, da. But there was like no pushback. I mean, there's un unanimity in saying from Republicans and Democrats saying, okay, yes, we're going along with this. And that means that, you know, as they always do with foreign policy, they're taking their marching orders uh, from the Pentagon. Um, which sometimes has some differences with different factions, but it seems to be a united establishment position that the time is now to end the formal conventional military occupation of Afghanistan, uh, dominate it in other ways, um, and shift to you know so-called more important targets. You said a lot of great things there. Uh, funnily enough, I've seen spin on this saying that Biden's trying to take uh, the steam away from Trump really ending the <laughs> Afghanistan war and, you know, Biden's coming in and stealing all the glory and stuff. But the thing about that is that Trump could have done this a long time ago, right? Yeah. Trump purposefully left troops there beyond him leaving office, specifically uh, leaving it open. That was the dangerous thing, you know, as, as we warned, is that right. when he troops are left, you can easily increase that amount of troops, which is what Trump did himself when Obama left those 8,400 mm -hmm. troops in Afghanistan um, after drawing down. That's the dangerous part, is that anyone can come in and escalate the war, which is exactly what we assumed Biden would do, especially because when he was asked point blank in interviews, I think that 60 Minutes interview, he was just like, yeah, I'm going to keep thousands of forces there. Yeah, you know, Trump could have set easily the withdrawal deadline for 
four months earlier, January. Right. Yeah, 1st, I'm sure the Taliban would have. I'm sure the Taliban yeah. would have loved that. And then Trump, he would say, "I'm the one who ended the Afghanistan yeah. war." Um, but he preferred to do what his two predecessors did, which was kick it over to the next administration to mm -hmm. say, "Oh yeah, I did my best to end the war, but now it's the next administration's." And so the fact that Trump did that. You know, he can claim credit if it goes well. And if it goes badly, he can say, look what Biden did. I mean, yep. I handed him the war and this is what he did with it. Well, it's so interesting, again, like, and I don't want to get stuck on this too much because I could talk about this all day, but like the lengths that people went to defend Trump and say that he really wanted to do it. And, you know, that that bill that you were referring to that was, uh, I think, championed by Liz Cheney, of mm -hmm. course, infamous war hawk about trying to keep us in Afghanistan. And people thought that that actually blocked Trump. Right. <laughs> that like Congress is blocking Trump. Justin Amash, um, very principled anti-war libertarian, actually debunked that flat out. He was just like, this is completely false. I don't know why this narrative is sticking. This didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, Meaning it didn't have any impact on Trump's ability to withdraw. Troops. Exactly. That, it got that was, right. Yeah. Exactly. You had people like Glenn Greenwald actually putting that narrative out there. And in fact, I still see him doing it, even though Justin Amash personally corrected him. Um, the Russian bounty thing has been you know, debunked. It was debunked a long time ago. Now, intelligence officials are saying, oh, yeah, there was there was actually no proof that that happened. It does seem like think tanks are freaking out. You know, we're talking about weapons, contractors, oil corporations, a lot of these corporations that fund the think tanks in D.C. That, ha that, that essentially is like if you really want to talk about what a deep state apparatus is, it's these think tanks, it's the intelligence officials and and military contractors who weave in and out of these think tanks that have massive influence in D.C. And the think tanks are freaking out, right? They're going nuts. They're releasing reports saying that the prospect for peace is so low. They're bleeding into the media because that's really where the media reports come from is these think tanks and the people that, you know, go in and out of these think tanks that just join these panels on corporate media. They're saying this is a huge blow to stability in the region. Of course, women's rights there hang in the balance. That's not entirely untrue, considering the, what we know about the Taliban and women's rights. Um, and even Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence who Biden appointed, compiled a report that said uh, pretty much what you just articulated, that the Taliban is likely to essentially like gain control of the entire country. Yeah, there's definitely factions that are dissenting against this, but I think overall people are accepting that this is the inevitability. And the Taliban is pissed that this deadline is being pushed back for four fucking months. That's an insanely long time to push this back. Taliban officials have repeatedly said like, okay, that's it. Like you broke the deal, right? You broke the deal. We can't trust you. We've heard this before. Four months can turn into six months, can turn into eight months. And already you have um, an international conference on peace that is supposed to meet in Istanbul that was supposed to host the Taliban as a negotiating partner, already rejecting attending. They're already saying they're not going to attend. A Taliban spokesperson announced the refusal to join the U.S.-facilitated peace talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Uh, Mohammed Naeem, a spokesperson for the Taliban's political arm, said, quote, until all foreign forces completely withdraw from our homeland, the Islamic Emirate will not participate in any conference that shall make decisions about Afghanistan. So it... There's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake. And it is baffling that Biden would kind of risk something so giant, you know, given what's at stake here. Um, so let's get down to the nitty gritty. Or before we get into actually talking about what 
the the plan is and if it's real and what we should expect. Um, there is something to say about the com- huge pivot that the establishment has taken on their objectives in Afghanistan. Um, but I think that the the other thing about Biden's speech is that he literally said mission accomplished in the speech, right? Which is like, you would think that, you know, after famously mission accomplished, George Bush and the aircraft carrier, that like you wouldn't use that term. Um, but But that's like a pretty profound statement that he's saying mission accomplished because what, what they are saying now is that um, they're happy with the Taliban completely taking over the country. Well, so they've changed the mission quite a bit. I mean, initially it was to um, drive the Taliban from power. I mean, that was the whole rationale with invading Afghanistan. It was it's not enough to let the Taliban capture bin Laden. It's not enough to drone strike all the al-Qaeda bases. We, the Taliban are harboring al-Qaeda. And so we must oust the Taliban and set up democracy in Afghanistan. That was the whole point of the Afghanistan war. So of the first phase of the war, it was ousting the Taliban and setting up a democracy, uh, you know, pro-U.S. democracy, or in other words, a puppet uh, dictatorship. Um, and then when it was clear that the U.S. couldn't defeat the Taliban, when the Taliban resistance proved impossible to defeat because they just had a constant flow of soldiers from Pakistan um, it was, and militarily on the battlefield, like the, the rough terrain, they just could not defeat the Taliban. So the next big phase of the war, when Obama, when Obama announced the troop surge um, in, like, in 2012 and in 2014, when he made his big Afghanistan announcements, they knew, the Pentagon and Washington knew that they could not defeat the Taliban. So what was the point of the surge? What was the point of all that extra bloodshed? The point was to put enough military pressure on the Taliban or essentially to lock them in enough of a stalemate where they could have a peace deal and have a unity government where the U.S. puppet forces and the Taliban would agree to rule Afghanistan together and the U.S. could accomplish everything it wanted, its minerals and all the its geostrategic location for military bases, it could get all of that through a peace deal with the Taliban. And so they were lying about defeating the Taliban for the last decade. That really was just to get a peace deal with the Taliban. And then now they moved the goalpost again and said, you know what? The unity government with the Taliban isn't that big of a deal. The Taliban's probably, and they likely are, going to just take over the entire country because the U.S.-backed forces have no legitimacy in the country and are only exist because they have U.S. protection. Um, so now the U.S. is saying mission accomplished. The Taliban is going to take over the country. So this past 20 years of saying the whole point of being here is because we can't let the Taliban be in power. Now they're saying mission accomplished. We're going to leave so the Taliban can take over. It's just kind of mind blowing that, you know, they think no one's paying attention enough to see that. After 20 years, the goalpost is completely shifted now back to saying, yep, mission accomplished. Uh, the Taliban is going to take over. when 20 years ago, you know, first it was targeting Al-Qaeda being harbored by the Taliban, and then it just morphed into the Taliban itself. And now it's just like they've just completely given up. Um, But it's just funny how we just, it's such a, it's like been memory hold so much that I don't think people realize how ludicrous this actually is on its face, that this is their mission accomplished. So, A lot of people have asked us um, on Patreon and also on Twitter. We put out a statement saying, you know, ask us any questions that we're going to be addressing in this podcast. And of course, the primary question was about what does this really mean, right? Is the U.S. really ending the Afghanistan war? Is the U.S. really leaving, Mike? uh, Why don't you take it away? Sure. Well, um, it's as you predicted, probably. Um, But 
right before starting this podcast, the New York Times published an article that I would just like to read a little bit from because that just answers this question flat out. Um, and we know the New York Times, of course, has deep sources in the Pentagon. And so they're getting the raw story that we all want to hear. So it's easier for me to just read it from them. But uh, so this was published just, you know, about 30 minutes before we are recording here. And the headline is how the U.S. plans to fight from afar after troops exit Afghanistan. The subhead is drones, long range bombers and spy networks will be used in an effort to prevent Afghanistan from reemerging as a terrorist base to threaten the United States. And the, epos- and the article goes, quote, American troops are set to leave Afghanistan no later than September 11th, but the Pentagon, American spy agencies, and Western allies are refining plans to deploy a less visible but still potent force in the region to prevent the country from again becoming a terrorist base. Drawing on the hard lessons from President Barack Obama's decision to withdraw American troops from Iraq, allowing the rise of the Islamic State three years later, The Pentagon is discussing with allies where to reposition forces, possibly to neighboring Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, according to U.S. officials. Attack planes aboard aircraft carriers and long-range bombers fly from land bases along the Persian Gulf, Indian Ocean, and even in the United States could strike insurgent fighters spotted by armed surveillance drones. So there you have it. Um, They, kind of similar to Trump's uh, I'm withdrawing troops from Somalia and then moving them just to the three neighboring countries, actually the same number of troops. Um, they're saying now that they're going to move U.S. forces to places where they are not already, like just over the border in these neighboring countries. Um, so they can easily enter Afghanistan to carry out uh, raids and combat operations. Um, and that not only armed drones, but having aircraft carriers very near to Afghanistan um, and long-range bombers constantly flying missions over the country where they can bomb it at any time. And so basically, what it looks like they're doing is uh, they're saying, well, there's no reason for us to be on the ground when we can just blow up whoever we want from the sky and send in all these commandos and have all these commandos there on the ground doing whatever we want just in like a black ops type capacity. So there you go. What do you think about that, Abby? I mean, yeah, there you go. Exactly. And it's going back to what Biden said in his speech, you know, like the this war is over, but the larger war on terror continues and they understand that Afghanistan cannot be abandoned after 20 years of investment. And actually, as we're going to get into quite a bit longer than that, if you count what happened during the Soviet uh, era. So. This does not include the thousands of men and women in NATO special ops, also the covert CIA ops, dozens of attack aircraft that you just mentioned that are manned or droned in the area on bases or aircraft carriers. And of course, the 18,000 private mercenaries that remain, um, which was significantly increased under the Trump administration, which is really a ratio currently of eight to one private contractor to military personnel. Um, 6,500 of those are American. I'm not quite sure the ratio of how many are actual combat forces, but 18,000 is a pretty shockingly high number considering it was just a few thousand when Obama left office. So that really shows you that Trump really did do that, you know, whole privatizing the war thing. Meanwhile, he was given credit for like trying to end the war. No one really talked about this, right? So all of this points to the potential for the U.S. to stay involved. But Mike, um, the private mercenaries thing is really interesting because why would they stay? And what right. would they be doing there? 
Sorry to cut it off here, Empire Babies, but you can find the rest of the podcast only on our Patreon at patreon.com slash empirefiles. There's about an hour and a half left where Mike and I go into what's behind this strategy shift, what this all really means for U.S. empire and its presence and influence in the region, Afghanistan's political future, as well as the true cost and legacy of America's longest war. Donor-submitted questions about the foreign policy pivot are also addressed in the episode. Thank you so much for your support.